Welcome to Families for Life with Brian and Brian, a podcast of Oak Hill Baptist Church. On today's episode, we are continuing Understanding God's Word, Part 3, Biblical Narrative and the Teachings of Jesus. All right, welcome back. We are back, and I'm excited to be back. How are you, Brian? I'm, I'm excited to be here and recording. Uh Exciting. Welcome to all of our listeners. Yes, welcome back. I hope that you are uh, ready for uh, some awesome conversations about biblical narrative. Ooh, and we got a lot to talk about. There was about. a lot to talk about. Yeah. I hope that I hope that we keep <laughs> hope it. you are ready. <laughs> I hope it doesn't get too lecture-y. So no, we'll I don't think it, I, I as we were looking through this, I'm like pumped. I'm like I'm really excited about these Good. things. So right. I hope I hope our listeners will find them enjoyable too. Well we also want to know want to make sure that everyone knows this is <gasps> the hundredth episode of Families Let's for Life go. Podcast. Yeah woo one we did it. It is kind of hard to believe that we've progressed a lot. Listen to that. Listen to that music right there. Wow. Next level. 100. Celebrate. <laughs> Do a dance. Oh, my word. <laughs> All right. So I think um, we're going to retire after this. Yeah, that's no. it. We're done. 100. We're done. Well, it is hard to believe that, though. Who would have thought? 100 episodes. Uh, we were just trying to get through COVID and uh, and continue Find connecting. Find a way to connect with, with families. People. Yeah. And we just kept going. Yeah. So. Well, cool. Well, I'm excited. Well, me too, me too. listen, if you are on the pod today listening, we would ask that you would subscribe to the pod that you would give us a review that helps people to find us. Mm-hmm. You'd share, email your friends, uh, or no, sorry, share the podcast, email us yes. if you have any feedback. We are at F4L, the letter F, the number four, the letter L, at oakhillbc.org. Let us know what you think about the podcast, if you've got any feedback, or if you have um, episode ideas. Yeah, you listen to us. Uh, we like to listen to you. We want to hear from you guys and, and know what you're thinking and how, how this is how this is, you know, interacting with you. What mm-hmm. do you guys think about everything? We'd love so. to hear your feedback. So mm-hmm. today, we are getting into some of the genre. Yes. The last couple episodes we set up, what it means to interpret the Bible based on hermeneutics. We talked about some of the rules. Each uh, individual book or each individual genre has its own rules. We know the Bible mm-hmm. is a collection of books, but you know it's 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 important to recognize the different genres. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. I think that's it's more important than you realize, and that's why I'm excited about this conversation because uh, we we get to discover kind of how to read the Bible and and how to do these things with these particular genres. It's like listening to music. If you, if you start listening to like rock music without knowing that you're about to listen to rock music, or you go to a concert and you don't know that it's going to be like, you know, hard rock, you're going to be really unprepared for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's the same way with reading genres, right? But they play a role in interpreting the Bible. Each, each genre, you know, is its own literary uh, kind of device. It has mm-hmm. its own literary devices, mm-hmm. things like that. What, what roles do they play? How, how does this work? Yeah, I think that when you, when you understand the genre, you can discover the meaning, which will in turn help you apply it better. Because you can't take, say, <clears throat> wisdom literature and look at it the same way that you look at biblical narrative. Or prophecy cannot be viewed in the same way you look at law. No. Mm-hmm. And so you have to understand... 
what are what is the style of writing? What is the author conveying? Because each individual genre is going to have its own type of rules. So that'll help you get to the meaning, and thus that'll help you apply it to your life better. That's right. So I, I can't tell you when I read scripture. You know, when my, my understanding of this changed when I was in Bible college and I started learning all about these things, and I was like, "Whoa, you know, you know, just read through the Bible." You know, mm-hmm. because normally when you get a book. For the most part, most books are written in one genre, mm-hmm. right? It's a it's a book of poetry, or you read a historical uh, narrative, novel, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, something like that, yeah, something like that, and you know the genre. Mm-hmm. The Bible is the collection of sixty six books, and some of the genres are overlaid in different books as well, exactly. And so you have to understand what you're reading when you're reading it to help you get a sense of of the proper meaning and how it's going to apply to your life. I, I likewise was uh it, it was like it was like I had rediscovered God's word when mm-hmm. I realized the the genres that it's different genre. Like I when I realized that the Psalms are are poems, not just, you know, English poems, they're Hebrew poems, you know, there's things about it that I don't know. And once I started learning that stuff, it was like I would read it and just be amazed at what I was reading because I, I understood it then. Yeah. I knew what I was looking at, so I knew how to interpret it. Right. Um, it, was, it was really cool. But today we're going to be looking at um, a couple of genres that kind of go together. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's this yeah, first one? Let's talk about biblical narrative. It's important because 60% of the Old Testament is narrative and 40% of the New Testament is narrative. So a hundred percent. Yeah, I know. I was, was going to make that joke. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> no, when, so when we think about, <laughs> when we think about this, we're, we're understanding, um, you know, stories, for instance, like, like you read about in Genesis, Exodus, Joshua, all the way through Esther, you know, the New Testament, we're mainly thinking about the gospels, the book of Acts, you know, the, the stories, of the Bible, where yeah. they're you're hearing a narrative. Yeah. So why is uh, why what is important about understanding this genre? Well, so narrative is you know it's that it's that telling of a story, right? You're narrating, right? So you're telling a story. And what's interesting, you know, I even was talking to my wife about this as we were telling our children about, you know, do you remember the story of this or that? And I'm like, should I use that word? Because oftentimes people hear the word story and they think of like a fairy tale or something, Mm -hmm. but no, no, no. These are stories can be true. Right. And and these stories are true. Mm -hmm. And that's, what's important about that. That's the probably the most important thing about understanding this is that this is a story that is true. Yeah, when you're reading the Bible, you are reading true accounts. Right. You're reading historical, historical accounts. documentation of what something that happened. Right. And there's been, you know, through uh, the, the the advent of liberalism, you've seen the, what they call higher criticism, and you've seen these things play out where they would say, oh, these are, these are, um, some of these things are true, some of them aren't, they're, they're, they're made up, they're, um, they're sensationalized. Right, they're they're right. all of these things, um, but I think I think through through the means of of apologetics, through archaeology, through all of these things, we've proven again and again and again that these people in the Bible were real, mm-hmm. that these places existed, that that the proper uh, movements, the proper things, the, the 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 events that happened are true and accurate. Right. Okay. Yeah. So then people go and they jump onto. Um, like supernatural events and miracles. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, how can you account for these supernatural, these miracles? Okay, yeah, we know there was a guy named Jesus that lived in the time that the Bible says Jesus lived. Right. But 
there's no way he fed 5,000 people. There's no way that he brought Lazarus back from the dead. There's no way that he healed all these people. Yeah. So how do we reconcile um, these things when we say these accounts are true? So that's a great that's a great question, and I really appeal to people like C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, uh, even Tolkien. That's why I love those authors a lot, because they have actually pushed me to believe in miracles and supernatural, supernatural things more than anyone. And here's why. Because they help me realize that I already believe in crazy things. Mm -hmm. I already, like, what we need to do is help people see the world that they take for granted and recognize the insanity of, not insanity, but the amazement of, of the things that you watch happen. The, the way that trees grow their leaves every year and then drop them and then bring them back, you know, science is a godly thing mm -hmm. because really all you're doing is you're looking at the world God's created and said, that's miraculous. Mm -hmm. Look at how he did it. Yeah. I mean that, that to me, I, I, I appeal whenever I talk about the Trinity, I appeal to a conversation um, with Douglas Wilson and, and um, uh, oh, I can't remember the atheist uh, guy's name, but the, the conversation was, you know, uh, black holes are amazing. Mm -hmm. You can look, if you see, if you were to look into a black hole, you'd see the past and the future at the same time. That's truly amazing, not this trinity. And Douglas Wilson's like, well, how, how can you believe in a black hole where you can see the future and the past at the same time and not believe in a triune God who created it? Right. Like, you already believe amazing things. So when you read these incredible things, shouldn't really surprise you. Yeah, I agree. I read... Um Miracles by C.S. Lewis, yeah. and that was a great help to understand um, the argument for supernatural events and looking at seeing how these supernatural events are, you know, when, when we believe in the God that we say we believe, that the Bible says yeah. these things are not out of bounds. These things are, you know, God has created a system and an order in which the world works. Uh, he is also great enough and large enough and, and powerful enough to... Um, do things within that order mm -hmm. that change the order of, of, of his natural laws. Yeah. And so then it's like a natural law would be death. Right. But God is sovereign over everything. So then now we know that God has the power to bring someone back to life. Right. We think we see that in scripture. We see Jesus did that. We see Jesus himself by the power of the Holy spirit was raised from the dead. That goes against the natural law. That's what we call it. Super, a supernatural mm -hmm. event. Mm -hmm. But if we believe in this creator God that is sovereign and, and larger than the universe and more powerful than, than, you know, anything, yeah. then yeah. he can do that. Yeah. So we don't have to uh, belabor this point. I will say there's a really great short resource mm -hmm. called why trust the Bible yes. by Greg Gilbert. It's a really short book. So if you, if you don't have a lot of time to read, you may be able to find an audio recording of it too. I don't know, but I've been getting into audio books a little oh, bit. Yeah. So I'm only like, it's the way to go. I'm only like, 20 years late to the game here, so, <laughs> but that's okay. So what do we need to understand about the perspective on narrative in general? Okay, the Bible has different layers. Now, this was uh, something we got from this book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. Yeah. They talk about this in here. So what are the levels that we're looking at here? Yeah, so the first level is they call the top level, right? So this looks at the overall story of the Bible, okay? It's got six, the Bible has 66 books. It tells one big narrative. Ultimately, it's telling one big narrative story, okay? Um, and uh, Answers in Genesis puts it like this, the seven C's of history, they call it the creation, corruption, 
catastrophe, confusion, Christ, cross, and consummation. So we see all of those things in the breadth, creation, Genesis, consummation, revelation, right? Mm-hmm. And we see all those things happening One in the Bible. Big story all in the Bible. It's, right. it's, this, it's this, you know, you could put it into words and say this is this giant story of God, um, of the fall of man, the redemption, the creation, the fall, you know, the redemption of mankind, yeah. and the one day, the, the, the consummation, the reuniting with our the, Lord. The way people talk about this in, like, you know... Um, movies and tv shows like this is kind of like the meta narrative right, right? the mm-hmm. the overarching story and we see it all throughout the bible right but so, then there's another layer right there's the middle level which looks at the larger chunks within the grand narrative for instance the history of israel you know we we look mm-hmm. at that we understand starting with abraham to the and to the exile you know and then we uh, follow along that that journey of Israel, but we understand that they feed into the larger mm-hmm. narrative as well. We look at the biblical narrative, the life of Jesus, and how he yeah. came, and that's a that's a, a middle level type story. Yeah, and then there's the the kind of the bottom level. These are the individual stories, you know, like Abraham sacrificing Isaac or Jesus feeding the five thousand. You know, every bottom level story feeds into the larger middle level, which then feeds into the top. It's just like like I really talk about this all the time. It's just like the way they use. Uh, TV shows and movies, and how all these flow together. And in a TV show, they normally, you know, the the episodes. Each episode mm-hmm. has its own storyline. Well, that and I know. Depending on some no, no, of the, can, can you give me an example? Yes, please. Let's think about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's exactly right. So I, each yes. there, there's little stories in each movie that are happening. But then there's the the middle level, which is the entire movie. Uh-huh. But then there's this grand narrative That's right. that was begun with you know Thanos trying to mm-hmm. take over the, Aven- the Avengers kind of story arc, right? right. Mm-hmm. And so you know we kind of saw that come to an end. Now they're having to make a new story. Sorry arc. if we just nerded out on but, you there, but uh, <laughs> but it helps. I, I I mean I've seen talking to college students, especially I've used that analogy, mm-hmm. and they like oh. Now I understand what the Bible's doing. Right. It's like, yeah, it's just it's just the same thing. That's right. Um, so it's going to help us when we study the Bible because we understand how these stories kind of fit together and in what what level, what area we're in. Mm-hmm. And that helps us get a larger picture because if you just read the individual stories, it's hard to get the larger picture of what God is doing. But if you understand, okay, these individual things feed into a, a, a middle level, I need to understand that. And how that middle level then will affect the mm-hmm. overall story. Like, oh, wow, this yeah. this all makes sense. Well, and then you also get to see how, like, y- your story uh, kind of intersects with these, you know? Right. And that's that's kind of the point. Like, you, your life is connected to mm-hmm. these things, you know? So it's not just a, it's not just a book. Right. You know, it's all, it, it God is coming at you, you know? Exactly. And he's telling you this story because he wants you to be a part of it. Exactly. Yeah. So what makes this genre unique? There are four things that Fee and Stewart point out that make this genre unique. So the first one is narratives are not just stories about people that lived in ancient times. They are first and foremost stories about what God did and through those people. Yeah. So how's this different from human narratives, stories that we write? Yeah, that's that's great. Normally, like when we write stories, we're writing about um you know, other people being the hero and, uh, and you see this in other religions where, you know, other people are kind of the heroes, but, but really 
in this story, God is the hero. He's the supreme protagonist. He's always, you know, there. Even in a book like Esther, where God's actually not even mentioned, the whole point is God's there the whole time, and right. it's and that's that's what makes that an even even cooler book mm-hmm. when you when you know things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it's 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 really neat to see how that God is the hero, mm-hmm. right? But then another thing they point out is that narratives. This is what they say. Narratives are not allegories or stories filled with hidden meanings, but there may be aspects of narratives that are not easy to understand. Mm -hmm. So how does God's sovereignty play into that? Yeah, I think that, you know, oftentimes we want to, we want to allegorize everything. You know, we want to um, like, okay, I want to find myself in this story. I want to, I want to find a way to make this make sense to me. And I do agree, there are some things that, that are difficult to understand in, in the narratives. And that's where we have to know that God is sovereign over all these things. He has given us the information that we need, mm-hmm. right? He has mm-hmm. given us this information that, that we have, and it's important to know that what we have and what we can study and what we can learn is, is all we have. Yeah. But it's all we need. Right. We don't have all of the answers to all of the questions, you know, yeah. that we may ask about a, about a scripture or a, or a text or a story, but it is all that we need. And so we trust God, yeah. we trust God that he's given us what we need. But, you know, like I said, it, it, it can't hurt us if we read too much or into, or if we allegorize the yeah. narrative. Yeah. We can like make it kind of almost whatever we want if we just constantly do that. So. I, I think there's a real tendency, like, like if we want to take, we like put ourselves into the story all the time yeah. and make it about us, you know, and, and I'm not saying, and this is like a fine line. I know. Yeah. Because we learn, for instance, Moses, you know, a lot of pastors, we learn leadership lessons from Moses and how he led, yeah. you know, but there's a tendency to like, make it really like Moses is the leadership guy. Yep. You know, that's not the primary, um, that's not the primary meaning of the stories of Moses. Uh, it's it's funny you say th- th- this about the fine line. I'm reading a book that our friend John uh, Luttrell uh, gave to me called In the House of Tom Bombadil. Mm. You know, Lord of the Rings, sorry. Um, but Tolkien, in that book that talks about Tolkien, how Tolkien didn't like the allegory. He didn't mm. really like the use of allegory. So it's funny, he didn't really like his friend C.S. Lewis's books that much. <laughs> but he liked analogy. Mm. And so this this things can be analogous where it's like it, this is is similar to that without it being like yeah I am you know David fighting my right. giants mm-hmm. no 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 similar to David we do need to stand up to things but then we have to realize in that narrative in that story what we really see is that is really pointing to Jesus right you know Jesus is David not me so while I can take lessons from David, I also need to recognize who my real savior is. Yeah, God is the redeemer, and he's the one that made that happen. I mean, right. there's no way a stone... Once again, I believe that's a miracle. Yeah, I, I think God so, God did a miracle in that moment. And mm-hmm. so God is the hero, once again, mm-hmm. in that story. That's exactly right. So, yeah. so number three, <clears throat> narratives do not always teach directly. They emphasize God's nature and revelation in special ways that legal or doctrinal positions of the Bible never can, by allowing us to vicariously to live through the events and experiences rather than simply learning about the issues mm-hmm. involved in these events and experiences. So it's kind of like if you, if I uh, can tell you a, a, a textbook, I, I, can, I right. can give you, like fixing a car, I can give you the book, 
the Chilton's manual and say, here's your manual on to fix your book. Or I can watch a YouTube video of yep. a guy fixing his car. That's that's a great that's a great analogy right there. Um, no, that's that's really good. I remember just learning history from professors. And, and the best way I learned was when our we talked about Dr. Brand a lot. Dr. Brand, you know, he'd sit up on the on the table and he'd just tell us stories about mm-hmm. people. Right. And, uh, you know, you wanted to make sure you got the dates. But but, man, the stories are what Helps made that me person come alive. Remember mm-hmm. what happened because that's what's going on. Instead of just being like this happened on this date and this is the result. It wasn't that it was who's this person. Yeah. I mean, God can say and he did say and we'll, we'll talk about this with the laws. God can say, um, you know, um, you know, have no other gods before me. Right. But wow, it's so powerful when you see Israel disobey and God reaches out and punishes them. You know, it's like, whoa! Golden calf. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So illustration is a very powerful tool. This is why in preaching we use illustrations a lot because, you know, you'll have somebody, you'll you'll be... teaching mm-hmm. and they'll grab a hold of your illustrations because right. those are the things they remember story narrative is powerful yeah and god knows that and he uses that to help us to remember the things he's trying to teach us that's exactly right yeah i really like that analogy you said of like fixing your car you can just have the instruction manual or you can have somebody walk through a video and show you right that's what that does that's cool okay so uh last thing that they say about this about what makes this genre unique is that quote each individual narrative of an episode within a narrative does not necessarily have a moral all to its own narratives cannot be interpreted oh this is a good word <laughs> atomistically atom yeah atomistically yeah as if every statement, every event, and every description could, independently, independently of the others, have a special message for the reader. Mm-hmm. So I think what this is trying to say is when you're reading a narrative, just because it says something – like, for instance, here, here's a great example. Um, it's kind of like taking things out of context, really. Mm-hmm. So w- there's, a, there's a quote from uh, the Gospels where it says something like, uh, if you – if you will bow before me, I will give you, you know, the the world, mm-hmm. you know, and people are like, right. wow, that's so inspirational. Yeah, that was the devil, you know, like right. in the story, mm-hmm. that was Satan telling Jesus that. So you don't want to take that and be like, wow, what an inspirational quote. No, that's not the point of the story there. Right. Um, so you can't pull points out of, you know, the statements and the things happening in every story. Well, it's almost like you're trying to make a parable out of every story. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. you're trying to like, oh, this has a lesson for me. And that's not always true. Mm-hmm. You know, so there, there many times God is trying to teach us things and how to apply it to our lives. But um, I think we have to be careful trying to read too much or to mm-hmm. try to make everything uh, a, a lesson, right. you know? Yeah. So there are... There, Without we, understanding the 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 middle level and the top yes, level. Yes. Yeah, yeah, seeing how it all fits together. Right. So there are rules to this, okay? This interpreting this this genre of narrative that's going to kind of help us see as you're reading through stories, mm-hmm. you know, what what am I really trying to think about? Yeah. Here? So so there's 10 of these here, so we'll try to go through them as quick as possible, but a narrative usually does not directly teach a doctrine. Right. Okay, so it's not instructional in that way, like a, like a, like a epistle would be, or mm-hmm. like the law would be. Yes. Um, second, a narrative usually illustrates a doctrine, so it's not necessarily teaching; it, it's illustrating a doctrine or doctrines that are taught propositionally somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So normally you can find the doctrine taught explicitly somewhere, but then you see it in the narrative. 
narratives record what happened, not necessarily what should have happened or what ought to happen every time. Therefore, not every narrative has an individual identifiable moral of the story. That's extremely important. It's not a fable. It's not Aesop's fables. You have a moral of the story. Right. And you shouldn't, for instance, like you don't just read like an Abraham, you know, you know, slept with Hagar, you know, like, oh, well, okay, I guess I'm, yeah. you know, no, like, right. no, <laughs> that's, that's not the point there. Number four, what people do. Oh yeah, here we go. This is, this is what I was saying. What people do in narrative is not necessarily a good example for us. Frequently, it's just the opposite. So you should see that. Well, especially like, in the old, don't do that. Especially in the old Testament. You know, mm-hmm. we see that some in the new Testament, not in the life of Jesus, of course, but we see, see that, it like Peter and people like right. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But in the old Testament, we see this a lot. I mean, there mm-hmm. are so many negative examples, but one of the things that God's trying to teach us through that is that even in our weaknesses, God can still use us. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of the things that's kind of that middle level is you watch all these characters, mm-hmm. you see God using all these people. Well, that's our, number five. Our next yeah. point, yeah, most of the characters and narratives are far from perfect and their actions are too. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And that's kind of encouraging to know, like, hey, you know, I still love Peter, even mm-hmm. though he messed up big. Right. I love that guy. I can't wait to meet him, you know? So it's okay if I mess up too just need to keep going back to Christ. Okay, we are not always, number six, we are not always told at the end of the narrative whether what happened was good or bad. We're expected to be able to judge that on the basis of what God has taught us directly or categorically somewhere else in Scripture. So this is really important in your interpretation because Scripture will not contradict itself. Right. So as you read these stories, you can't read, it's like a it's like just what you said about about mm-hmm. Hagar and Sarah. The lesson is that God uh, diso- Abraham disobeyed God. Right. Not not that that's a, a model for us to live out mm-hmm. in our lives. And so we we're not explicitly told that. However, other places in the Bible we're told about the importance of marriage, the into- the importance of putting God man, first, about yeah, loyalty yeah. to God. I mean, we're talk we're taught about trusting God's sovereignty and His plan. So you put those things together as you have a biblical worldview and a biblical theology. Right. Those things come into focus. Yeah, like the narrative isn't going to constantly give you a disclaimer that that just ruins the story. Right. It's not going to come and be like, oh, and by the way, this is bad. You know, it's right. not going to do that. You already know that because the Bible has said that elsewhere. Um, Okay. All narratives are selective and incomplete. Not all the relevant details are always given. What does appear in the narrative is everything that the inspired author thought important for us to know. Right. We mentioned this a few minutes ago, but yeah, this is, that's really important to understand. You don't have all the questions answered. You don't have everything that you want to know, but you have everything Mm -hmm. God wanted you to Mm -hmm. know. Yeah. So number eight, narratives are not written to answer all of our theological questions. We have a particular specific, they, they have a particular limit, specific limited purposes and deal with certain issues, leaving others to be dealt with elsewhere in other ways. Right. Um, number nine, narratives may teach either explicitly by clearly stating something or implicitly by clearly implying something without actually saying it. So there are times where narratives do come out and, and do say like, and you know, like, and this was pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. Right. Like, okay. This was good. This was that, bad. You know, right. like got it. But then sometimes um, it doesn't. That's right. You, you have to, you have to be able to out. judge that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fi- uh, number 10, in the final analysis, God is the hero of all biblical narrative. That's yeah. important to keep that perspective. It is because, again, we start to insert ourselves as the hero. It's amazing how in many churches you can find um, almost like self-worship, mm-hmm. you know, like, man, uh, I'm so great. God loves me. I'm well, and awesome. I think, you know, I think, you, know you look at some of the early church and they did that with the apostles. Oh, yeah. You know, the Catholic church does this with the saints, you know, and it's. 
it's like I I I'm thankful for Pete Peter. I'm thankful for Paul, but they're not Jesus, right? You know, That's right. they're not the Lord. Yeah, they're just trying to point us to Him. So the next thing uh, we need to talk about, the final thing I guess when we talk about narrative is is considering the audience. Who is the audience that the author is writing to and why does it matter? Yeah, that's great because every narrative is written for a certain reason and a certain audience, uh, you know, specific reasons, specific audience. And uh, you, you got to think about like the Gospels, for instance, mm-hmm. right? Th- these is a, this is the perfect example. There's four Gospels and people say, why are there four Gospels? Yeah. Why did we get four accounts of what Jesus said? And actually, I found an article. It was an article. It was a little... Um, no, paper is a PDF mm. by Daniel Aiken. I will link the, all these resources in the show notes. But he said that Matthew was written to Jewish Christians. Mark was written to Romans. Uh, Luke written to Hellenist or Greek mm-hmm. believers. Uh, John was written to Jews outside of the Holy Land, yeah. not specifically to people that were in, in Jerusalem in that area. So what do these different audiences tell us about how we interpret these narratives? Okay, so yeah. the example of Matthew, right? Right, yeah. So Matthew has the major theme of kingship, right? So Jesus is the redeemer king, the servant king. He's fulfilling all the prophecy in Isaiah 42, the new king of Israel, which is the church, mm-hmm. God's people, right? And you know that's bringing way more people into right. the kingdom. Yeah, so. as you read Matthew, he's not rehashing all the Jewish beliefs and customs because mm-hmm. the audience knows that. Right. So you may hear Jesus say things, and you ha- you know we as Gentiles have to go back and understand the history of of feasts and festivals, or mm-hmm. we may have to understand the, the temple structure and and why these things uh, are are wrong. You know, it's mm-hmm. like um, it's like when Jesus cleared the temple. It's like we don't fully understand that. It seems like just an aggressive like like mm-hmm. like act on Jesus. But if you understood the temple and the history of the temple, and the the, the Jews are like. Oh, okay. I know why Jesus. Right. I understand why Jesus did that. It's kind of like being on the outside of an inside joke a little bit, you right? Know? Like you gotta you you hear it and and people are like whoa, and then you, you just got to figure out what's the inside what's the inside scoop here. The thing that, that that's they, all there is. The thing that the, the Jewish uh, people might have had a problem with is understanding Jesus as the King, as the Redeemer, yes. as the Messiah. Yeah. Because this is the thing that they were waiting for. Some some. Um, you know, Messiah that was going to ride in on a horse and and lead the army against the Romans. Yeah. You know, the Roman occupation. Yeah, they didn't understand what they he was really going to be so like. So Matthew's like, no, this is your king. Mm-hmm. This is your king. Your your redeemer. Your conquering king. He's here to to conquer, but not in the way that you think. Yeah, that's good. Luke, on the other hand, was writing primarily to these Hellenist Greek, you know, audience. Um, he emphasizes Jesus' humanity. So they believed uh, heavenly in the spiritual world, but it wasn't grounded in flesh. They're very, you know, spiritual the gods, kind of. Well, yes. they had they had this belief of the gods, and right. ev- everything in their world was controlled by the gods. The yes. sun rising, every, yeah, literally everything. the harvest, all these things. Yep. So for them to understand that Jesus was a spiritual person is not hard, but for them to understand he was God in flesh, that was hard. That was hard for them to understand. Yeah. And so they had to really come to grips with that. He spends a lot of time um, helping them to understand Jesus, both divine and human, and uh, needing to understand how that connects in the gospel. Yeah. And so we get these different emphases, and this is important because in this audience, as we're, as we're understanding the audience, we're understanding how to interpret these scriptures properly. It's so important that we understand audience when we read these narratives. Yeah, yeah that's right. So 
we we've talked a lot about narrative. Um, there's there's I'm sure there's plenty more that we could just talk all about because it's so much. I mean, there's oh yeah, like you said, it's the majority of the Bible mm-hmm. is is narrative. Um, but we want to talk a little bit about this topic of. You got to get through all these genres here. So yeah, that's right. There's a lot of them. <laughs> there's a lot. Um, we're not going to get through all. all we're going to we, try. We're to not going to be exhaustive. We're going to try to do two genres every episode. So yeah. now we're going to shift gears and talk about the teaching of Jesus. Right. So Jesus, you know, kind of a big figure in the Bible, right? Yes. <laughs> I've got the, this book, the main figure of the Bible. I've got this book, the Method and Message of Jesus Teaching by Robert Stein, Doctor yeah. Stein. Uh, I took. Uh, New Testament one, I believe. I didn't write in this book, but um, well, we've used him a lot with his basic guide to interpreting the Bible. Exactly, super duper helpful. Too. And so this is a helpful text. I will say there is a lot of technical stuff in this mm. uh, in this book, but it's really good. Mm. I mean, he is a scholar of scholars here. And reading this book, it uh, it it goes pretty deep to talk. Mm. About I've never read things. that. I, I would love to read that. Yeah, but let's talk about. Um, this genre, why is it important to think about this as a separate genre? Because Jesus' teaching is contained in the Gospels. Why do we need to think about it as a separate genre from, say, narrative and prophecy and, and other things we might come across? Because Jesus, yeah, that's great. Jesus' teaching is unique, and it covers several different genres, subgenres, you know, yes. Jesus, Jesus, you know, Jesus is the Lord of all. He kind of does whatever he wants and, uh, <laughs> well, he is, and it's good. He and, is and the so, master teacher. Exactly. And he taught in many different ways to I mean, capture the word different audiences in flesh, right? He's the word in flesh. So when you see his teaching, you, you want to pay attention to it. Cause he's kind of like, it's like the best. It, I mean, we want to be careful not to think of Jesus teaching as, um, more of God's word than any other part of right. God's word. It, mm-hmm. It's all God's word. But here's where we can really see God's word like just shining, you know, spectacularly, right. you know, like like it does everywhere. So it's even hard to say that. But we got to pay attention to what Jesus does. Yeah. We got to pay attention. So so here we we have we have identified ten genres subgenres of Jesus' teaching. So let's go through these. The first one we're looking at is overstatement. Yeah. So this is one means by which Jesus sought to capture the attention of his listeners was the overstating of a truth in such a way that a resulting exaggeration forcefully brought home the point that he was attempting to make. Mm. So what's an example of that? Yeah, that's uh, great. This is I, I really kind of leaned on you a lot in this. And, and again, that book uh, is going to be really helpful. But here's something that Jesus said in Luke 14. Uh, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So, like, what is Jesus? He's telling saying? us to hate our families and even hate ourselves. Yeah, right. Which is po- that that is a possibility. You, we are capable of doing those real things. Isn't that contrary though to other scripture and even Jesus' own teaching? Yes, in some areas, he says to love our neighbor as ourself. So then, do we take this literally? No, we understand overstatement, it's an overstatement as as him trying to grab the attention of the people. So what he's mm-hmm. meaning is. Our affections for our loved one, even our affection for ourselves, should not interfere with our allegiance to the Lord. That's Jesus right. comes before all. Yeah. So this is why there was such a problem when the guy said, um, Jesus, let me go bury my father before mm. I follow you. Your allegiance to the Lord is not supreme. It's not yeah. pri- the primary thing in your life. Right. That's right. So the next one, and this is where it gets interesting, uh, and this I was confused. You had to help me understand, is hyperbole. I thought it was hyperbole. 
Oh, really? I'm just kidding. Yeah, I was like, oh, okay. Hyperbole. <laughs> Hy- That's how it's spelled. Hyperbole. Hyperbole. <laughs> hyperbole, uh, right? So hi- this is hyperbole. It says, uh, he, uh, he says, Stein says in his book, hyperbole is closely related to Jesus' use of over- overstatement. Both has in common the use of exaggeration. We can distinguish the two, however, by the degree of exaggeration involved and define as an overstatement a saying that could be understood. In hyperbole, the gross exaggeration makes such a literal fulfillment or portrayal impossible. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was saying. Cannot do the thing that Jesus is saying. Yeah, so he's not making an overstatement. He's making an impossible statement. You could hate your father and mother. Mm -hmm. He's not saying to do that. That's an overstatement. But you you can't do the thing he's saying in this example. He says, children, this is a Mark 10, 24 and 25. Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there have been, and he talks about this, there have been many attempts to make this less than what it is. Right. But I believe that, and, and many, Dr. Stein and many other scholars believe, no, Jesus was making an, a hyperbole here saying, you cannot put a camel through an eye of a needle. It's in, it's literally impossible. Yeah. The eye of a needle is so small and the camel is so big, you it's, just, you it's just can't do it. Some people interpret it as a cable, like because the word camel and the word for cable Yes, or are the same, or they talk about a gate in Jerusalem that a camel can't go through. Different things like that. Mm. It doesn't matter. The point is that uh, that for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God it is it is near impossible. It's not impossible. Well, no, no, no. But it, he's it, making the example here yes. of how hard it is. Well, and that. Uh, he, he it is impossible, and I think that's the point. You know, because then Jesus says elsewhere, with man these things are impossible. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, like Jesus literally says that, but then he says, "But with God, all things are possible." So he's that's, using this to grab our attention, right. to, exactly to, right. to shake us and wake yep. us up. Say, "Oh my goodness! Like I better pay attention to 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 God." You know, another fun one is the use of puns. Yeah, this is cool. So another form that Jesus used in his teaching was pun. Jesus told puns. A that's pun awesome. is a play on words. In either, which either homonyms, like sounding words, suggest two or more different meanings of the same word that may have different meanings. So you see this. Now, you don't see this all the time right. in English because a lot of this is wordplay. I'll give you an example. Um, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees where they say, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So basically what he's saying is... For them, they would have been like, oh, but for us, it's like, oh, okay. So so they would strain their beverage Mm -hmm. so they would not have a, a little gnat they would not consume a little gnat, which bugs were unclean. So sure. they're, they're going to the nth. I don't want a gnat in my drink either. Well, they're going to the nth degree for re- right. over-religious purposes. Right. That's not the intent of the law. You know, like if you intentionally eat an unclean animal, right. eat a pig or something like that, you intentionally consume it, you're breaking the law. Right. You swallow a gnat by accident, that's not like, breaking okay. the law. Mm-hmm. But the Pharisees were so just particular o- overcome yeah. with that. And so what Jesus is saying is you strain your drinks to get gnats out of it, but you turn a blind eye to love, mercy, and justice when you're dealing with fellow human beings. Mm-hmm. And so the pun comes when you look at the Aramaic in which Jesus gave this, because the words for gnat and camel are very similar. similar. It's it's one word, one letter, one letter that's being changed. So yeah. it's I, be, I don't know my pronunciation is correct, but for gnat, it's galma, 
And then for camel, it's gamla. Yeah, that's so. That's he's saying, funny. "You blind guy, straining out a galma, but swallowing a gamla." Like, oh, got him. <laughs> <laughs> this is just one example of when Jesus did this. There were several times that he did this throughout Scripture. That's, I mean, that's that's cool to see when you see. You know, sometimes you read the Bible and you just. You don't read Jesus as though he's just, uh, you know, as though uh, as though he's a real person. Mm-hmm. But then you see things like that, and you're like, "Wow, that's that's just cool to see Jesus like using sentences the way we would, mm-hmm. but using it in the most holy way." Right. You know, I love that. I, I think that's hilarious to me. <laughs> What's the next method? Okay, so simile and metaphor, right? Um, so r- we remember these from school. I was just thinking, like, man, I, I remember learning this, trying to figure out the difference between the two. So similes, a direct comparison, it usually uses like or as, whereas a metaphor is implicit. Um, so, you know, simile, uh, let's see, the eye. So this is metaphor. The eye is like. No, that's simile. No, that's simile, yeah. The eye is like a lamp. For the body, and then, uh, or the eye is the lamp of the body. So, so simile is when you say like the eye direct is like. comparison. You don't have to say like, but that's but very that's often the best way to do used, it, the yeah. most frequent. But then the eye is the lamp of the body is a metaphor because we we know it's making you know this, right. this metaphor. So here's a simile from scripture, Matthew twenty three twenty seven. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. That's right. that's really apparent. We get that immediately because it's, it's spelled out for us. Metaphor. Yeah. Here we go. Metaphor, Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Mm-hmm. A little, it's it's you can you understand what he's saying. They're very similar, but you gotta you gotta take a second to make sure you you are getting the mm-hmm. the comparison correct. Right, right. Yeah, I think these are important. I think if you uh, look at these comparisons and understand that Jesus is using this as an illustration to get us to understand his point, I think those are important. It's, it's for just helpful. It's just really helpful. Yeah. So there's another. Here's the fifth one. Yeah, a proverb. A proverb can be a maximum, uh, aphorism, a, a wise saying, a folk proverb. There's lots of kind of subcategories even a proverb yeah. but it's a it's a terse pithy saying that contains a strike uh, in a striking manner a memorable statement so you might say where jesus said for where your treasure is there your heart will be also mm. that's kind of a proverb that jesus said in matthew six twenty one. yeah yeah that's good so what's the next one paradox okay paradox these are statements of quote from stein these are statements that appear contradictory this apparent contradictory must be understood in light of the beliefs and value present in Jesus' day among his contemporaries. For in another context, with different values and beliefs, his statements might not appear contradictory. Okay? So, so this is where context is really yes, important. Because to, to us, we might not quite see it, uh, but they would have seen it and, and, and recognized and understood. So here's an example, Mark 10, uh, 43 through 45. It says, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yeah, so how so, do we get this right? Yeah, I think th- and there's lots of these statements where Jesus is saying, uh, you know, it's like the first shall be last. Here mm-hmm. he's saying, if you want to be great, you must be servant. Well, in our minds... Uh, or in the in the time that Jesus is writing, servants were not great. Yeah, there was no such thing as a great servant. A servant was the lowest class, 
the slave was the lowest class. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is saying, listen, in the kingdom of God, the kingdom paradox, if you want to be great, Mm -hmm. you've got to be servant of all, slave of all. You've got to act like you're willing and not act like, but be willing willing to to serve mm -hmm. and do the things. Because here's the example that I've given. Jesus has Mm -hmm. given. I have come to serve. Yeah. And so this seems like a, I mean, this would have been, this to them would have been, I mean, you know, we've we've talked in the church for a long time about servant leadership That's what I was and get at. Yeah. serving one another. And even in the church, yeah. serving is a is an exalted position. But back then it wasn't. Serving was not. And I think that's true. A lot of these paradoxes, we Christianity has kind of dominated the Western world for so long that some of these things we already know, like it's kind of in the subculture of our of of everywhere in the West. Right? I honestly think Jesus would have offended people by saying this. Oh yeah, I think this is offensive. What he's saying to to his believers at yes. this point. Yeah, and so they wouldn't. So they would have been like, you know, and they would have been like, how? Like that's impossible. Like why would I do that? That doesn't make any sense. Whereas to us, it's like, oh yeah, but we've we've been hearing this for thousands of years already. Um, and so what we have to do is see what this is really saying to those people and then kind of help ourselves by using, I like to use, you know, analogies. Like for me, it's like, it'd be like saying, um, you know, to be the highest level, you know, CEO positioned person in America, uh, you got to go, you know, be a janitor for free. You know, right? Like that's that's that would help me understand what Jesus is saying. Like, oh, okay, that's that doesn't make any sense, right? But but that's what he's saying. So, anyway, so that's that's a really good one. We got well, to talk do about some work. Yeah, let's talk about irony here. What is irony? Yeah, irony is the subtle use of a contrast between what is actually stated and what is more or less um, suggested. Yeah, Riley suggested, like the fun word. Yeah. So this is Matthew 16. He says, he answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be Mm -hmm. stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Yeah. You know, so it's just a, it's an ironic statement. He's Jesus is using to say, you know, you, you understand what's happening with the weather, but mm-hmm. you can't see what's right in front of you when it comes yeah. to the coming of the Lord, of you, the Messiah. You could almost in your mind, you could almost insert like a hmm, interesting, you right, know, like right. like because because that's the point he's making. It's like, wow, you should get this. Um, and he's using irony. So what's this uh, other one here? Yeah, the use of questions. I thought this was really interesting because I hadn't put this together, but but Stein has this in his book. He says, several centuries before the time of Jesus, Socrates, or Socrates, if you're Bill and Ted, made famous the use of questions as a method of instruction. Sorry. In doing so, oh, Socrates, dude. <laughs> Sorry. Do you remember that from the I, movie? I know what you're talking about, yeah. yes. <laughs> In doing so, Socrates was well aware that by his use of questions, he forced his audience to become involved in the learning process. Jesus also knew the merits of this Socratic method and frequently used questions in his teaching. Can I say something about this? In in a uh, past episode, I was trying to reference this, and mm-hmm. I called it the... Uh, um, I, I didn't call it the Socratic method. I called it the, oh gosh, now I can't remember his student, uh, Socrates. And then there was, 
There were three. Dudes. Are you talking about um, Socrates? And yeah. Oh, why am I? Why am I blanking on this? Plato? Uh, was it Plato? the Platonic? Yeah, method? I tried to call it, it that. That was I was wrong. I was mm. dead wrong, and I've thought about that many times. And well, now, now you're get, correcting. Now I get the opportunity to say, hey, guys, Socratic I was method. wrong. It's the Socratic method, and it's a really good one. Jesus, Aristotle, even. and Plato is kind of what you're thinking, right? So Socrates, yes, Aristotle, Socrates, Plato. Aristotle, Plato, yeah. Alexander the Great. Yes. All okay. Of that. Cool. So what's Continuing. a good what's a what's a good example of this? Okay, so Mark, let's see, Mark 16, 27 to 31. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples into the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? So here he is asking a question. And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets, and he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Isn't it interesting? He didn't start by teaching them. He asked questions. Then he began to teach. Mm -hmm. So it's like an introduction to his teaching. Like he's drawing them in. Who do people say that I am? Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, you know, I've heard this. I've heard this. I've heard this, you know. And then it's like, who do you say that I am? Mm -hmm. And man, he's got them locked yep. in to what got he's him. saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's I love teaching that way. Uh, our Sunday morning Bible study that's that's almost exclusively how I how I teach that. Yeah, listen, part of uh, this is a, a note for pastors: mm -hmm. get really good at asking questions. Yeah, that's true. Don't don't ask. Listen, I, I listen to. Uh, the Dan Patrick show a lot. Mm -hmm. And he's big into this because he he'll criticize um, reporters that ask terrible questions. Yeah, you you know? talked to me about that. And they ask questions that are not direct. They ask leading questions. They ask um, yes or no questions. They don't, they don't ask a question that's going to have the person think and respond, mm -hmm. you know, cause I can go up and ask a question and say, uh, you know, what, who thinks Jesus? And I do this with the kids a lot. I give right. them I give them easy you le have to, leading yeah. questions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if you're really wanting to teach like a youth or an adult, yeah. you've got to let them like, somebody who can think critically. Right. Yeah. The answer is not like ask them a question. And the answer is Jesus. Right. You know. Although I'll say sometimes you got you got <laughs> you got to really lead them on, but you know that's okay. <laughs> but really, really, <laughs> pastors, teachers, uh, life group leaders get good at asking questions. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. <laughs> Um, okay, so poetry. Jesus uh, was a poet. Um, he frequently used poetic language, uh, but is often unrecognized because it doesn't rhyme, right? Um, and that's that's kind of normal for poetry in you know the Bible. Uh, here's an example. But there's rhythmic balance, though. That's yes. the thing. Sorry. And, the, and, and once you. again, you don't you may not see this in the English. Right. This is where you go back to the Aramaic and the Greek. You see the rhythmic mm -hmm. balance. And then in the Hebrew poetry, we'll we'll talk more about that. That's just a whole other level of poetry. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here's something that Jesus said, Mark 3, 24 to 25. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. So it's not immediately recognized as poetry, but he's using a poetic in, uh, device here yeah. to get his point across. Yeah, and it's and that's why studying the original languages, like if you, if you want to just go crazy deep, you got to go do that mm -hmm. um, because you get to enjoy. It's not so that you necessarily learn a ton more. You will. You will learn things. But it's really just a lot. It's usage. Enjoy it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just beautiful. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay. So what's the last so one? So here's the last one. This is probably the most popular. This is the most frequent way Jesus taught was in parables. Yeah. 
35% of Jesus' teaching was in parables. So a parable, this is from gotquestions.org. That's a great website, by the mm-hmm. way. A parable is literally something cast along something else. Jesus' parables were stories that were cast along a truth in order to illustrate that truth. His parables were teaching aids that can be thought of as extended analogies or inspired comparisons. So a common description, I've heard this before, of a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I don't know that I love that, but mm. but it's simple and it helps people to get to the point. I, I think it's a little bit more complex. I than think that. that's the starting point of the of understanding what a parable is. You know, right. like it's the earthly story with a heavenly heavenly meaning. What what we're really trying to do is keep people from thinking that parables are um, these super duper complex. Uh, analogies and allegories mm-hmm. that we have to figure out everything. And, and there were interpretive methods that people use to try to say, oh, well, you know, if if this this corresponds to this directly and that, you know, element of the parable corresponds directly to this, and, and that's just not always the case. Well, I think, once again, it's the use of illustration that's exactly. so powerful. You know, it's like we, look, we talked about with narrative. You know, Jesus is having these stories as illustration to... Uh, get his point across. That's right. So, do you have a favorite parable? Um, so, yeah, I would think. Man, the one that I just think about probably the most is uh, is the parable. And some people argue about whether or not this is a parable. But you know, Lazarus and the rich man. Mm. Uh, was it Lazarus? No, no, not Lazarus. Um, yeah. I believe you're right. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was his name. That's interesting because you know, you know, Lazarus. Uh, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Well, there's there's Lazarus who would you know. Um, beg for money mm-hmm. outside of the rich man's house, and uh, Lazarus dies. The rich man dies, and they are in. Uh, Lazarus is in what is called the the bosom of Abraham, mm-hmm. right? And the rich man is in uh, Hades, and the rich man cries out and says, "You know, Lazarus, you know, c- can I have a drop of water?" And it's like, "No, you can't." And he's like, "Okay, well, can you go and tell?" my loved ones or, or can I, can I, can somebody, someone tell my, my brothers about this um, so that they can be warned. And I just think that that's interesting that there, you know, there are, there's this parable to tell us like, don't kind of like, don't wait till it's too late. Mm-hmm. You know, don't wait till it's too late. Yeah. Um, because when you get there, like, man, you're going to regret it. Well, I have uh, the parable of the sower is one that I've taught on a lot. And I really like that one. And, you know, a lot of these parables can be, uh, misinterpreted or too simplistically interpreted, you yeah. know. Uh, I remember listening to uh, John Piper teach on the parable of the sower, and he really emphasized because Jesus emphasizes about how you hear, mm. and so it's it's be careful how you hear. And what he's saying is, you hear the word of God, and then these four things happen when you hear it, mm. you know. And he's saying this is the seeds of the of of the word of God going into your life. And these four different things can happen to it. And mm-hmm. it was really interesting, kind of changed my perspective. And I think a lot of parables we, we can get wrong because yeah. we don't read them carefully and we don't, we don't interpret them correctly. You know, I love also the parables. Uh, the, there's a segment where Jesus teaches about the, the lost things, the mm-hmm. lost coin, the lost sheep, yeah. the lost son, you know, and I love that, that section of parable. One more I want to just throw in there because uh, you said a couple. <laughs> um, I, I really love the parable of the mustard seed, mm. which is, is 
it's a parable. It's a, it's kind of, it's more like just straight uh, an analogy, but, but he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. The kingdom it's of like, heaven is like a mustard seed. That is the smallest seed in the garden, but you plant it, it goes into the tallest. It's a simile. Uh, yeah, that's right. And, um, well, some of these things you can't understand unless you actually, uh, unless you know, like he talks about farming a lot, unless you know farming, you well, can't understand unless that. you know right. what a mustard plant looks like, right. you know, right. what a mustard seed looks like. And they would have known that. So it made sense to them. You got to go, you know, Google. Thankfully we can Google like, what does a mustard seed look like? Right. And you see that and it's like, wow, the kingdom of heaven is like that. And so to me, it's like when I, when I invest my life into the kingdom mm-hmm. I, and this is, I'm even reading into this too much but but really what he's saying is like the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed you plant it i really think he's talking about himself being um given for the kingdom and he is the one who dies you see paul talking about seeds dying and then coming back and rising into this thing i think he's talking about himself as the king bringing the kingdom and then the kingdom grows and expands into this gigantic thing that even the birds of the air find shelter Mm -hmm. in that's, That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, okay, let's keep going. Well, let's talk about um, how we interpret parables, okay? Mm. This is important. So the first thing is you seek the one main point of the parable, right? okay? Uh, you do not seek all- allegorical significance in the details of the parable unless it's absolutely necessary. So these are some notes I had from Dr. Stein in my book here that were... He was lecturing through this book, and I had written down some different things. And so uh, one of the things he says, how do you arrive at the main point? You ask, who are the main characters? To whom or what is the most space devoted? Mm -hmm. What comes at the end? The rule of end stress. So you Mm -hmm. look at the end, and you say that that oftentimes has the meaning. And you go back, and you you interpret it based on that. Mm -hmm. And then what occurs in direct discourse? Mm -hmm. What happens around that that yeah, Jesus that's like is the saying. conversations mm-hmm. surrounding it, yeah. So that's how you understand the main point, and we'll we'll flesh this out in a minute. We'll give a uh, we'll give an example and break down what a parable is. So, how do we detect allegory? So, we look at. I just lost my spot. I'm sorry. Would Jesus <laughs> a audience have attributed meaning to these details? Okay, so so would they find the significance that you're trying to allegorize? And would the evangelist, the writer of the gospel's audience, have attributed meaning to these details? Thank you. Okay, yes. so he's trying to he's trying to make sure that we're not over analyzing or over putting putting more meaning into the text than what is actually there. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Can you explain that more to me? Because I'm 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 this is you know these are your notes and I really right. like this. I want to hear un- more about well, it. Well, it's it's like we talked about understanding what the audience would be taking away from this. Okay. Right. Yeah. 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 So the okay. author is is writing things, writing down the story of Jesus. Jesus is speaking this to his audience. Mm-hmm. What would they have thought? What so would you they have put understood in, in their place instead of trying to say what does this mean to me? It's it's if I were them, right? What did that mean? To right. Me? Yeah. And yeah, you yeah. can't take extra. things things in it and out of it that that they would not have thought or known got it do you okay. know what i'm saying yeah, yeah. in in the time and i think that's important because you if, if you start to think and put yourself in the story and put your time and make the story yeah. about you yeah. you're allegorizing like it. you do want to put yourself in their shoes but you want to make sure you're in their shoes right so you're not bringing your mm-hmm. concept of reality you know from your perspective mm-hmm. Well, and I it. think number two, uh, so that was that was all part of number one. Number two is to see 
uh, seek to understand what Jesus meant when he uttered the parable in its original setting. That also right. helps us not to, to over-allegorize it. So Yeah, okay. Number three, we want to seek to understand how to... Uh, how the evangelist interpreted the parable in his setting in life. So how did he interpret it? Kind of like, kind of like that <clears throat> rule of in stress, I think mm-hmm. is, is a part of that as well. You know, what is he really getting at? Sometimes, sometimes he tells you. Right. You know? mm-hmm. So then uh, how to seek to understand, uh, seek to understand what God is teaching us today through this parable. So <laughs> let's do an example here. Yeah. Let's talk about the parable of the lost sheep. Okay. So, um, Think about the setting of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, now the tax collectors and and sinners were drawing near to him. So Jesus is teaching all of these people that were um, not mm-hmm. overly religious. They were they were not great people. Okay. Yeah, people despised people. Right. Yeah. And the Pharisees and the scribes, so they're watching over, are grumbling, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So then Jesus told them this parable. Because of that, Jesus is saying, What uh what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Mm-hmm. So once again, we got to be careful in how we interpret this, right? Who are the main characters? Mm-hmm. Who are we looking at? The shepherd. We know that's the Lord. The 99 are the people of God. And the lost sheep, the unredeemed sinner, representative of all lost peoples, actually. Mm-hmm. The one sheep is not necessarily not you person, or right. me. It is you or me. If you, yeah. unrepentant, mm-hmm. but it's all lost people. That's right. And so Jesus came, what he's saying is Jesus came to find lost sinners that are far from God. And it's if, you know, the shepherd is saying, I'm leaving these 99 to go and find the, because I have such a care and concern for this lost sheep that I'm willing to leave these to go find that one. Yeah. And then when we find it, we're rejoicing. We're having a party. God in heaven is rejoicing when a lost sinner comes to faith in Jesus. Yeah. So he's really driving in the fact that all people are God's children. He loves them and he mm-hmm. wants to redeem his lost children. Yeah. He's really making a comparison for people to see and to say, hey, if you care this much that you would do this for a sheep, like how much more would God do for a lost person? Right. That's how much God cares about them. Well, th- and think about it. Think about it. if you're a sinner, or you're a tax collector. That's there. How Jesus is looking at how you, saying, "How encouraging is that?" Yeah, God loves you. Right. You haven't gone too far because I, Jesus, have come to redeem you. I have come mm-hmm. for all of my lost sheep. Yeah. But if you're a Pharisee and a tax collector, you're put on notice there. Mm-hmm. What is God's primary concern? Mm-hmm. It's not religiosity. It's yeah. not you observing the letter of the law and, and drawing out every every iota. It's you being a part of, of what Jesus is doing. Well, and it's it's he's he's showing that they've missed 
they, they're so stuck they on the letter the of the law. Mm-hmm. They've missed the point, and this we'll talk about when we get into. Well, they laws. were not happy that all these sinners and 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 uh, right and all these tactars were coming to Jesus. They were not happy that these people were repenting of their sin. Right. Then they've missed the character of God. They're they're so they're so their nose is so down into the law that they've missed the character of God that the law is actually exposing. Yeah. They they've really missed it. Okay. So for us, are we are we seeking to be about the business of God? Number one. And then when are, are we looking at people like Pharisees judging mm-hmm. them or are we seeking to help the kingdom of God to, to proclaim the gospel? And then when they come into the family of God, boy, we need to be rejoicing. Here's, here's a helpful uh, thought. I've, I've thought this way. When you find yourself interacting with people or thinking thoughts, um, uh, especially about other people, ask yourself the question, uh, what kind of parable would Jesus tell me right now? Mm, that's good. You know, mm-hmm. like how would Jesus interact with the thoughts that I'm having right now? Because he interacted with their thoughts sometimes, mm-hmm. not just what they said. Right. And uh, so, you know, <laughs> what would that parable be? <laughs> so you can do this with with all the parables and use this kind of method to draw out the meaning and yeah. the application. And so we we did a good job there of not trying to over allegorize right. it, but we did find an application for ourselves exactly. in this as well. Yeah. So. Okay, so as we wrap up Jesus' teaching, there are um, an o- some overarching messages of his teaching, mm-hmm. right? Yes. We know the gospel is the is the supreme message, but within that, there were ways he talked about the gospel yeah. and how it played out in our lives. So there are four main themes. Yeah, so the first big, huge theme is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. He used those different... Uh, gospel writers use those terms synonymously. Right. Yeah, so uh, looking at Mark 1, uh, 14 to 15, says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, so the kingdom of God is uh, both a present reality. Jesus brought the kingdom of God. but he's it's the king. Right, but it's also a future inheritance. Right. So saved peoples are in it, working to build it up by telling others the gospel. And Jesus tells us many times in scriptures, what it's like to live as a part of the kingdom of God, how we should live now, but then also what the future, how one day the kingdom will be fully and finally fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And yes. so this is a, this is both a present now and a future inheritance. It's the, it's the already, not yet. That's right. Mm-hmm. So uh, what's the next one? So then we have Jesus talking about the fatherhood of God. Mm. You know, Jesus really sort of reorients our relationship with the Lord. He In Matthew 23, 9, he says, And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. There's some overstatement there, you yeah. know, that he's mm-hmm. using. But, but Jesus uses the term Abba to describe God, to describe Yahweh. He doesn't... He doesn't go back to some of the older. He, he uses other other descriptions of God, but he doesn't go back to the popular like Adonai or Elohim. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, he uses Abba as Father, yeah. and what he's doing is he's helping the believer who has entered the kingdom of God help them to reorient their relationship with God. It's right. not just Creator God. It's not yeah. just this far off, you know, God of heaven, mm-hmm. sovereign over everything. It's Father God. Right. He's come close to us. Well, and you know, he, he's doing that because he is the Son, and that is their essential relationship eternally. He God the and Father he, is the Father. And what he's doing is he's saying, You are relating to the Father exactly the way that I wow. do. We are we become 
a part of the inheritance of God. We become adopted into the family it's, because of Jesus. That's exactly right. It's it's so, so cool to see Jesus talking that way. Um, thirdly, we have the ethics of the kingdom. So the the ethical teaching of Jesus has been misinterpreted and, and perverted by many things like, you know, judge not lest you be judged, things like that. Well, the ethical teachings of Jesus uh, it can be frustrating, but there seems to be uh, no like organizational system. It's like, yeah. like I just want to know exactly what you think. Well, he spends a lot of time <laughs> on certain subjects and then passes by others quickly. Yes. Like, and you're like, like what? <laughs> Jesus talks a little bit about marriage and divorce, but uh -huh. like we would say, like, like That's Jesus, the most important thing. Tell us about marriage. Yeah. Tell uh -huh. us about divorce. You know uh -huh. all these things. But then some things he never even mentions. Right. And so there's not like a system of belief here. And I think that's important because we understand the ethical teachings in light of the gospel. Mm -hmm. The heart must change. And then much of what Jesus is trying to do is to get us to understand how we live out that redemption. Right. How that's taken place. So he gives us examples. Mm -hmm. Not yes. necessarily. Some of them are prescriptive, but he's giving us examples of how to live. I think of one of his ethics where he says um he says if someone tells you to go a mile yeah. you go 2 miles right. he's not giving us a commandment here to say uh every time you know every time you see somebody walking go 2 miles with them right. he's giving you a commandment to say our desire the desire of the heart the yeah. desire of the christian is to always do more it's to a, serve people more more than what you're expected to do. It's the law of of love, right? I mean, it's to love God and to love others, and so that's that's really what everything that he says is driving at. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, I don't feel like Jesus felt the need to to say every little thing under the sun because that's why the Word of God is there. I mean, the the whole the whole Word of God is here for us. You know, Jesus is the Word, but he was. He didn't feel the need to have to, to say every little thing. Well, and the law, and this is what he says in Matthew 7, 12, the law is not gone, right? Right. But he says, whatever you wish to do to others, also uh, also do to them, for this is the law and the prophets. He's, he's, That's a golden rule, right? He's saying, we're, I'm here to fulfill the law. Right. I, I'm helping you view the law in the right way. So once again, he doesn't give us everything. He doesn't rehash the entire law for us. He doesn't rehash the ethics of the kingdom for us. All of that Old Testament law is still, you know, is still valid. Yeah. He's still giving us the Ten Commandments are still valid, but it's in light of the gospel. I'm, I'm now. excited to get into the, the law. That's the next what I've episode. been thinking mm -hmm. about a lot, and it, that's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to see some really cool things and parallels from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Well, and and you mentioned that love. I think love is our guiding principle in that's all right. of this, right? So love God. He said, "Love God first, love your neighbor." I mean, this is the greatest commandment, and. We don't have to read this, but you can read it in Mark chapter 12. And mm -hmm. I think that's really important that love becomes the guiding factor for the ethics yeah. of Jesus. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay, so, and then finally, Christology. You know, Jesus taught a lot about who he was mm -hmm. and what he came to do. Uh, some of that was uh, a little less, like, explicit. He didn't be like, I am, you know, the Son of God, and this is what I'm here to do. But some of it was. Mm -hmm. I mean, he did He did straight up say, like, I am him, you know. Um, so his teaching showed up a lot in how he titled mm -hmm. himself, kind of the, the way he talked about himself. And so he used terms like Messiah. Um, some of his favorite uh, terms, his favorite was actually son of man. Right. Yeah, he, he said son, or he said son of God, but then son of man. Uh, and I read some about this. This goes back to the book of Daniel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh yeah. And Jesus used this because it was a cloaked term to say Messiah right. without saying Messiah. That's right. Because if he walks into a Jewish context and he, and he says openly, 
Like, hey, I'm the Messiah. Like, this dude's crazy. Right. You know? But he says, I'm the son of man. And it's a veiled term. So those that knew, those that were in the know, were like, oh, okay, I know who this is. Well, it's it's kind of like how, you know, you and I will talk about how if, if somebody comes into the room and tells you, hey, I'm the smartest person in the room. Yeah. You're, you're like, not actually the smartest like, person. Like, no, you're not, you know? Yeah. Or at least that's what you're going to think, right? So, so normally... That doesn't happen. Even, you know, and Jesus operated the same way. He didn't just come and be like, sup, everybody, I'm the savior of the world. You know, he he, he handled that he appropriately. Did. He did, but but you're right. His most popular way the, the, was In a the particular way. Mm-hmm. That's right. right. And Son of Man, I pers- one of the, I think it's just so funny that God has, through history in the book of Daniel and, and the way this all played out, he used this term, Son of Man, because I, I just think it's fun that Jesus is going around calling himself a human being, mm-hmm. but also calling himself God right. at mm-hmm. the same time. I right. think I think he's just being, <laughs> I think he's, I don't know if this is the right way to see it, say it, but it almost feels like he's being a little cheeky. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's pretty yeah. awesome. Um, so, so in all of that, Jesus is affirming mm-hmm. straight up that he is the Messiah. I mean, it is indisputable. People try to dispute it, but that's, it's, it's frankly, it's mm-hmm. silly when you just look at what he says and how he affirms, like to the woman at the well. I mean, right. he straight up mm-hmm. tells her that he's the Messiah. Um, you don't get any clearer mm-hmm. than that, right? So Jesus is telling them that he's the savior of the world. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. come to do that. So those are kind of his big, like that's, I mean, there was you know, a lot of gospel, lots of messages, but those are the big four things that he talked about uh, in his in his teaching. So. Well, we've covered two big genres in this episode. We've, we've run over a little bit. and Hey, uh, but it's the majority of the Bible, right? 60 and 40%. Wow. So 100% probably, of the Bible. <laughs> probably won't be this big episode I wouldn't make any time. promises. I'm not making promises. I'm making hopeful uh, claims. Okay. <laughs> well, let, let, let's just break this down real quick. Narratives okay. must be looked at as true accounts. Context yes. is important. And we have all that God wants us to have in those stories, all that we need to discover the meaning as we study them, as we look at the history, as we look at the the context around it. God's given us all we need there. That's right. The teaching of Jesus is unique, uses a lot of different styles. Jesus is the master teacher. We can learn so much from him, and we need to key in. If you're you're, uh, somebody who's new to the Bible— the primary thing, the, don't start in Genesis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Start in the Gospels. Right. Start with the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Matthew, something like that. Get a sense of who your Savior is. That's right. Read all about him. Read his teachings. That will help you more in your study to begin there. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. Well, uh, listeners, thanks for hanging with us. I know that that was a lot, but I'm telling you, if, uh, if you are paying attention and really soaking this in, uh, I really believe that this will help you as you get into your Bible study uh, the next time you get into the well, Word. Check out our resources. They'll all be listed in the show notes there. You can check that out. And we're just uh, we're grateful we get to do this, and uh, we're thankful that you listen. Absolutely. Well, so thank you all for listening. And we'll see, see you, you next time. time. So this would be our hundred. Then, if that's if my count is correct, this would be our hundredth episode. Wow! Yeah. Okay. One hundred. One hundred. 
Oh, man. Okay, so we'll say this is the 100th episode then. Cool. Love it. We are... And I'll hit this button. <laughs> yes. Yeah, rock and roll 100 party! <laughs> I like that. That's actually good. <laughs> you like the music? I'm okay with all of that. 